Confidence is a choice. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day saying, oh, Jesus is my confidence. Well, if he is, that means we started with him, we surrendered to him, we serve like him, but we make the decision to be satisfied in him. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Lorenz. Crawford is leading us through a series of messages, helping us understand what it takes to have rock-solid faith in God. Stay with us for today's study from Philippians chapter 4. If you're new to our broadcast, Crawford has been teaching and sharing the Word of God for over 50 years. He served as a pastor, conference speaker, and seminary professor. He's authored several books, and among them, his newly updated one titled Leadership as an Identity. He's also written Unshaken, and one he co-wrote with his wife Karen called Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow. Crawford served for 15 years as the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. That's where these messages come from on Living a Legacy. He retired from fellowship a few years ago and now heads a Christian leadership mentoring program called Beyond Our Generation. Well, last week, Crawford emphasized that confidence in Jesus is a choice. He listed five decisions we must make. We find these described in Philippians chapter 4. They are, number one, we start with Christ. Number two, we surrender to Christ. Number three, we serve like Christ. Number four, we are satisfied in and with Christ. And number five, we are sustained by Christ. Let's learn more about our surrender to Christ as we head to Philippians chapter 4. Here's Crawford Loritz on Living a Legacy. Dr. Marie Henry Kearns, a professor at Oxford University in England, uh, she makes this observation. She said, all of us need to order our lives around the rhythm of our relationship with God. I love that. In other words, what she's saying is this, that our relationship with God is everything, and everything in life comes under that. And we order our lives based upon this. By life or by death, Christ will be honored. And then he also says that this surrender is manifested in a single passion. Uh, You know the famous verse, verse 21 says, For to me to live is Christ. Paul redefined his life. He says, my life is not my life. My life is the life of Christ. Certainly he had his own personality, certainly he had his own interests, certainly he had things that he liked to do. And don't read that as saying that Paul became passive in another person. But what he's talking about is that he became a single passion person. My life is my relationship with Christ. That's what he's saying here. And you listen, I'm, I'm just pleading with you. I don't know how to say it any better. Until Jesus becomes everything to us, we will always struggle with our our God confidence. It is as simple as that. And Paul says, look, I'm doing well because I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm doing great because I've embraced the sovereign power and control of God and that no matter what happens to me, if they kill me, I win. If I stay here, I win. Why? Because it's not my agenda. It's his life. I remember a few years ago, this sort of went out of style, but everywhere you turn, there were these bracelets and T-shirts and hats and bumper stickers that said WWJD. You remember those days? What would Jesus do? That ain't too bad, is it? And that's the question we need to wrestle with. 
Perhaps what would Jesus be in this situation and what would Jesus do in this situation? For to me to live is Christ and to die is again. Third decision. Third decision. Confidence is a choice. Christ being our confidence is a choice. Often God drives the decisions by turning up the heat in our lives, by taking things away from us, uh, by allowing us to be painted in a corner. But confidence is a choice. You got to make a decision. You make a decision to start with him. You got to make a decision to surrender with him to him. But number three, you have to make a decision. And this sounds strange, but hang in there with me. You got to make a decision to serve like Christ, to serve like Christ. Here's the point I want to argue a little bit here is that our confidence is affected by how we approach our relationship with others. It's affected by that. That's the reason why I believe Paul gave us that, that, that tremendous couple of paragraphs in Philippians chapter 2. Now, I can't get to verses 6 through 11. That's not my point. But I want to look at verses 1 through 5 here where Paul talks about challenging us to think like Jesus and to relate to others the way Jesus related to others. And this is counterintuitive because he's calling us not to lead with our own agendas as we relate to others, not to lead and relate to others from power, not to compete with other people. Listen to these words and capture the vision of the nobility of these relationships. He says, so, there, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. I happen to believe that the illustration is what Paul wanted to get to at the very beginning, but he sets it up by describing the breakdown in dysfunctional relationships. He says, you all are tearing each other apart and going to rip each other's confidence away because of how you're relating to one another. So, he says in these verses, and again, for the sake of time, I'll just, I'll just click off the first two, and I want to say a little extra about the third one. He says that the way we relate to one another, based upon the fact that we started with Jesus, we surrendered with Jesus, this is to be demonstrated horizontally. By the way, there is no such thing as a personal relationship with Christ in the Bible. I know I use that expression. The gospel is comprehensive. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, it is to be demonstrated by having a right relationship with others. Anything less than that is an artificial Christianity. The Bible is far more comprehensive than our Western view of the gospel. The gospel is far more inclusive on a horizontal plane. If you're right with God, you're going to pursue right relationships this way. Thus, the illustration right here. How did Jesus relate to other people? And he says, this is going to give you confidence in your relationships. Well, he says three things. Number one, he related to them out of a heart of love. And he appeals to them in verse one, uh, in Christ, any comfort from love. The way I'm to relate to other people is not from some silly quid pro quo, what they can do for me, how I can use them and get over and how I can manipulate them for me to get to where I need to be. Shame on us. I'm not to be generationally arrogant, meaning that my age group is the best age group that there ever was. 
But I'm to love people, all the people. You're to love the people, all the people. Not just to love black folks or white folks or Hispanics or where I come from. We love people. That's authentic Christianity. So we relate to one another out of love. Number two, we relate to them out of unity. It's the same mind, same love, in accordance of one mind. Don't read that to mean agreement. Disagreement is not necessarily division. You can disagree with people and be unified. But he's saying don't have a divisive attitude. Lean into one another. Look at the greater good. And make unity your passion, not just having your own way. We, we, we are competitors here in the United States. We are quick to get in spitting contests with one another. We've got to prove our worth and our value. I've got to tear you up in order for me to feel good about myself. It's dog-eat-dog dog out there, man. I can't get ahead unless I put you down. And we tend to deal with one another that way. Why do we tend to deal with win and lose? God wants us to deal with win-win. Together we're better than separate. But then thirdly, he says... There needs to be a spirit of humility. And let me give you Crawford's definition of humility. Humility is a willingness to choose personal deference and denial for the greater good. Now, I measure those words. Notice I said choose. Choose. A humble person is not the person that thinks they ain't worth anything. That ain't humility. You got some emotional issues, but that's not biblical humility. And I don't, that's not, I don't mean that'd be funny. Don't pass off um, low self-esteem and that kind of thing as biblical humility. That is not humility. In fact, in the Bible, humility is incredible strength. Thus, Jesus gives, um, thus Paul gives the illustration of Jesus leaving heaven, laying that aside voluntarily. He unpacks that for us. He says, let each of you look not on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Back up to verse 3, he says that we shouldn't do anything out of rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry there is a, it was used of political campaigns. So don't, don't be campaigning with one another. Don't be, don't be getting old spitting contests, fighting with one another. Humility says, doesn't say, humility says, it's an incredible strength. It says, I am, I, am, I am comfortable enough with who God made me and my relationship with Jesus that I can willingly lay aside what I want for the greater good. That's a position of strength. You can't lay aside what you don't know that you have. I like the way Andrew Murray says it. Andrew Murray, uh, the famed South African, uh, well, what do you call him, uh, a mystic, spiritual leader or whatever, and, and, and mystic in the, in the greatest sense of the term, says that the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply doesn't think of himself at all. I mean, he's not self-serving in his relationships. The humble person is the one that's, that sees the objective He said, okay, if I've got to give this up in order for us to get to a healthy place, well, I'll give it up. No problem. That's humility. But this is a big deal, even as it relates to confidence, because we cannot cannot act with love, act with unity, act with humility until we know that we're secure in Jesus. I trust you, Daddy. I trust you, Daddy. I trust you, Daddy. And that your validation of me does not give me worth. 
Your opinions about me does not make me any better. It's all what Jesus says. Fourth decision. Confidence is a choice. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day saying, oh, Jesus is my confidence. Well, if he is, that means we started with him, we surrendered to him, we served like him, but number four, we make the decision to be satisfied in him. This is, this is, this is a biggie. Look over in chapter three. Paul says, okay, let, let's, let's have a little boasting going on here. Pick it up in verse three. He's writing to them and he, he, he's warning them about these, uh, these wolves that are coming in. And uh, by the way, every church has three groups of people. Every church has three groups of people. We have sheep who belong to the Lord Jesus. We have goats who look like they're Christians, but they're not. And they will be separated on judgment day. And they are wolves. These are vicious folks who come in seeking to destroy. And by the way, you don't pet wolves. You get rid of them. I won't say any more about that. Verse 3 says, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, I have more, okay? You want to you get in a little, little context, a little one-upsmanship here? Let's compare biographical sketches. Let's compare backgrounds, okay? How's this for size? I... I far more, okay, circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness of the law, blameless. There you go, I got it. But I want you to notice what he says here. I want you to pay attention to verses 7 and 8. He says, <laughs> but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, he just described power and prestige. He said, I had power and prestige. I, I don't, when, when Paul walked into the room, I filled the room, man. Everybody knew my background. They knew where I was from. They knew I was a young rising star, my pedigree, all that stuff. I filled the room, power and prestige. But when I met Jesus, I moved the power and prestige over from the gain column to the loss column. Because I determined to be satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. That he's everything, everything in my life. There is no comparison. That's what he's saying. There's absolutely no comparison. There's no comparison. All the stuff that you may have accomplished, there's, there's no comparison. It's like Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 42. You know, Martha's ticked off because she's cooking this meal. Jesus is coming. She's cleaning up the house. Got to get the place setting just right and all the stuff just right. to get some dust in the corner. Get that out of there. Get all, you know, and, 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 and Mary's just waiting for Jesus and sitting at his feet. Jesus and Martha, glad you got, got a nice looking crib here. Wonderful looking house. Nice and clean. I'm really impressed, but that's not why I came. I'm everything. Devalue the stuff is what he's saying. That's what he's saying in verse 8. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice the present tense. Everything in my life 
that might tempt me to attach value to it, I put it up against Jesus and I devalue it. I do that. This is an embarrassing thing. We all need to be vigilant along these lines. About six years ago, I was uh, speaking at a national conference, okay? It was a national deal there. And um, it was in, I was speaking the next day. The opening night was in a big facility. And so I was going to hear, listen to one of my buddies. And I was looking at the program. And down the program, I saw the names and bios of all the guys that were speaking, including my own. And that program said Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so. And then it said Crawford Loritz. Well, at that point, um, and I only share this for the sake of you understanding the story. By that point, I had three doctorates. And I tell you, when I read that, you know what happened to me? It's embarrassing. I go, wait a minute. These people know me. They got my bio. These folks are dissing me. (laughs) I'm just telling you how I felt. They're dissing me, man. What's up with this? You know, I know I ain't all that great, but come on, man. You can call them doctor and call me Leroy? I mean, what is this? <laughs> I had to tell you how I felt. You know what I mean? Now, some of you are more spiritual than I am. You would have never had that thought. <laughs> okay. But you know what happened to me? I mean, it was, I, I, I had a hard time there for about a couple minutes. I'm going, you know what, wait a minute. Come on, man. I paid my dues. And the Holy Spirit beat the heebie-jeebies out of me. <laughs> oh, you paid your dues? Let's see. How'd you get there? Did you ask for this? How does having that doctor in front of your name affect how I'm going to use you tomorrow morning? You see what I'm saying? how we have to remain vigilant. Jesus. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. I think you can be falsely humble. I think, you know, and I I don't ever use my doctorate around here. I don't have people ask me to call me. There are appropriate times when you're in academic settings or whatever, as long as your head don't get attached to it is what I'm trying to say to you, all right? But my head got attached that day, and I needed to be dissected. Be careful of subtle power things that come up and grab us that diminish the surpassing greatness of Jesus. And then the last one is don't shed too many tears. Don't have undue grief over the loss of stuff. That's what he says here. He says, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know the word rubbish is? I wish they would have left the original word in there. You know what rubbish is? Yeah. The old King James really had it right. Dung, manure. This is what he's saying. Anything compared to Jesus is waste material. It's the pearl of great price. The last one is this. We decide to start with him, to surrender to him, to serve like him, to be satisfied in him, but finally to be sustained by Christ. Now we get back to the text. I happen to believe it's because of these things that he sings. You see, thanks for the gift. I really appreciate what you've done. But Jesus has been so dear to me. 
that even though I'm in jail, the critics are lying about me. And I want to see my friends so desperately. I got to tell you, even with these imperial guards chained to me, he has given me such contentment. And I believe with all my soul that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would remind you, he is saying that while in the midst of hellacious circumstances. In 701 BC, Sennacherib and the Assyrians invaded Judah. As they were coming upon Jerusalem, Hezekiah, the great reformer, uh, knew that they were coming and what he had done in a brilliant move was to stop all of the flow of water to Jerusalem. And if you've ever been in the Middle East, water is the currency. I mean, everything is built around water. And by the, by the time Sennacherib and the Assyrians get to Jerusalem, they can't figure out why the people are not dying. In a brilliant move, Hezekiah, what he had done was this. He had dug a tunnel to the pool of uh, 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 the stream of Gion and redirected that flow of water through Hezekiah's famous tunnel. And by the way, when we were in Israel, we walked through that. Redirected that water to the pool of Siloam. And the enemies didn't know where it was. It was refreshing water that kept them alive. They thrived. And nobody knew where the source was. Christ is our confidence. He is our ability to keep after it with joy. Even though our circumstances are like a desert. Crawford Loritz, our speaker here on Living a Legacy. And that was the second part of the message, Christ, Our Confidence. Crawford listed five decisions we must make to establish full confidence in our Lord, according to Philippians chapter 4. And here they are once again. Number one, we start with Christ. Two, we surrender to Christ. Three, we serve like Christ. Number four, we're satisfied in and with Christ. And number five, we're sustained by Christ. This message is part of Crawford's multi-part series titled Rock Solid Confidence, and hope you'll join us next week for our study. If today's message was helpful, take just a few moments to let us know. Simply write to legacy at moody.edu, legacy at moody.edu. And here's a note from John who says, thank you for your broadcast. We're praying for you, your family, and ministry. We value the time Dr. Loritz puts into studying the Word and delivering the message God has on his heart. Well, John, we're so grateful for your prayers, and we're blessed to know you're drawing closer to our Lord through Crawford's biblical messages. Thank you so much. Again, our email address, legacyatmoody.edu. To hear this and other messages in the series, check out our website, livingalegacy.org. Look for the past program link, livingalegacy.org. You can also listen on your favorite podcast site. Next week's message, Confidence, a done deal. We'll see you then. 
I'm Bill Davis. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.